Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 10th, 2023. Um, earlier today, I did a show with a young writer, uh, Rion Amilcar Scott, on the rise and fall of black Twitter, particularly in the context of social media and race and racism and the various demonstrations and uprisings and apocalypses of the last few years. Social media is certainly having an enormous impact on our politics. You only need to look at other headlines today. Uh, the special counsel, uh, Jack Smith, got a search warrant for Trump's Twitter account. Uh, Twitter then is so central in the news. And it's not just Twitter. It's all of social media from YouTube to Facebook and so on and so forth. But before there was social media, there was cable news, which in many people's minds dramatically changed politics in the uh, 80s and 90s. And my guest today, Catherine Kramer Brownell, has a new book out, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. And uh, Katie is joining us from Indiana, where she teaches uh, at Purdue University. Uh, Katie, in historical terms then, when do you see cable television being born? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast and the show. And, you know, it's really interesting is when I began researching this project, I thought cable television emerged as a product of the 1980s. But in fact, as I started to dig into the research for this project, I found that it really developed alongside broadcast television. The first cable systems were called community antenna uh, television systems, CATV. And uh, they, they originally expanded the reach of broadcast. Uh, to rural and mountainous areas that could not get broadcast signals. But then over the course of the next few decades, cable emerged as something fundamentally different from broadcast television as a competitor and an alternative to um, broadcast television. We always have these kinds of conversations about one media replacing another and its impact on television. Of course, there were Lots of books, lots of thinking about how television changed American politics from radio and how radio changed American politics from print and how print, mass print, changed American politics from a more cottage publishing industry. Is there anything in historical terms about cable television that was different in the way it changed politics in, in the context of previous media technological up, upheavals? Yes, I think there is something fundamentally different about cable television, because as it becomes um, developed and seen as an alternative to broadcast television, something that's not just extending its reach, but offering something different on the dial, it does something um, that radio, motion pictures, and network television of the early 20th century doesn't, do not do. 
those earlier technologies really created this mass audience. It buttressed the political establishment that was growing more media savvy and becoming more integrated with this, these media industries. Cable television offers this idea of narrow casting, of not appealing to the masses, but appealing to smaller audiences, um, and more intimate appeals, and thinking about segmenting audiences and building a more active constituency that will turn out to vote and that perhaps is more loyal, but you're not thinking about the, perhaps selling a message to the lowest common denominator or building consensus. Uh, Katie, a few weeks ago, we had my old friend uh, Jeff Jarvis, another media scholar. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, also a social media activist and personality. He has a new book out, The Gutenberg Parentheses which argues, I think, and he's been making this argument in all sorts of ways over the last few years, that what you call narrow casting um, is a return to historic media. It's a return to the pre-industrial model. I'm not sure if your book deals with that, um, but could one argue, as Jarvis does, that the broadcasting of radio and television and the motion picture industry of the late 19th, early 20th century, that they themselves were unnatural. I think that that is absolutely an argument you could make. And um, and indeed, cable television, as it develops, it has all of these different networks. Um, all of, They all have different identities. They have different partisan outlets. that have different uh, subscribers that feel loyal to that particular network. Um, that That is something that does look a lot like the partisan press in the days of the early republic uh, of, of the United States, and, you know, which is really where my expertise comes in to play. But, um, but I think that that partisan press of the early republic is very similar to the partisan television environment we get on cable TV. So in that sense, and I know you're more perhaps dispassionate than Jeff, who always wears his heart, his intellectual heart, at least on his sleeve. You're not necessarily saying this is a bad thing. It's a complicated thing, right? This, this cable television, it has its pluses and its minuses. Certainly the fragmentation of America is problematic in the age of Trump. But I'm assuming from your point of view, it also brought benefit. Absolutely. And I think that there's a tendency to think about, you know, the, the 1950s and the 1960s when Americans all sat down and consumed the news and listened to Walter Cronkite and there was consensus. And indeed, network broadcast television did manufacture a certain type of consensus and forged relationships with the political establishment that made both very powerful and they were mutually beneficial. But this perspective that came out of the news, perspective of public affairs, it was very deferential to um, official sources. It was very elite, white, male, heterosexual. So it was incredibly exclusionary. It was exclusionary ideologically to many conservatives. It was exclusionary to women, to um, uh, marginalized communities. Uh, black activists saw changing news structures and getting their voices as central to their quest for social justice. So, as you say, uh, the, the, the age of Walter Cronkite was one of manufacturing consensus. It goes without saying, particularly on the race side, on the gender side, on the sexual identity side, there were these ignored, 
and often persecuted minorities. What changed with uh, cable television? What do you see as the, the, the key network? I know you spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about C-SPAN, which to me is the least sexy of the cable net television networks, but you see as being important in terms of changing fashion and politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, so first I would say that, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, all of these people across the political spectrum can agree that there is a problem with the TV landscape, that this monopolistic uh, that uh, structure, which is regulated to serve the big three television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, uh, that this is problematic and because it's so exclusionary. And so throughout the 1970s, cable operators see a business opportunity to tap in to that civic frustration Um, and promise that cable can provide more access, more television access that people across the political spectrum are clamoring for. Um, They're thinking mostly about expanding their business reach because during the 60s at the same time, Cable is highly regulated, so it cannot compete against broadcasting in many of the top television markets. And so the cable industry is thinking about the business potential uh, of tapping into this frustration, this democratic discord, if you will, with uh, the television networks. And and I think C-SPAN is a great example that Brian Lamb launches C-SPAN because there is a frustration in Congress um, over the fact that so much of the television focus is on the presidency, and that has been part of the power that people like Richard Nixon abused. And so they're hungry for media attention. Um, and so he tells his cable operators uh, that the way that NBC, ABC, and uh, CBS became powerful was through the news. And he said, if you want to be taken seriously in Washington, this is a direct quote, if you want to be taken seriously in Washington, the path to prominence is through public affairs. And, um, and so he said that, you know, we need to invest in things like C-SPAN in order to have regulators and elected officials take us seriously. And he was right. It worked. C-SPAN, of course, to be polite, is rather dry, um, but it's analytical and accurate. It doesn't seem to be as certainly as propagandist as some as the other networks. Of course, a network that's best known for its propaganda, the cable channel is Fox News. But MSNBC and even CNN seem to reflect that in some ways. Do we see the rise of a new kind of figure on cable news? The one who always seems to come to mind for me is Rachel Maddow, who seems more like a, an evangelist, a preacher, than, um, than Walter Cronkite. And, and, of course, you can find many Maddows on the right, too. Does it? create a new kind of political personality? I think what cable does is it creates opportunities for new voices to come into the media landscape and gain political prominence by creating a spectacle, by doing something that generates attention and generates ratings. And this happened in the early 1980s, even on something as dry as C-SPAN, that it is introduced into the House of Representatives in 1979. And it only takes a while for fringe members in the House of Representatives to see that, huh, if I do something 
outlandish. If I make do give these rants that are very emotional and draw in viewers, even if it's a small number of viewers, it might generate a national following. And this is something that Newt Gingrich does um, and a range of his uh, fellow conservatives who are on the fringe of the Republican Party at that time. And they're part of the minority party. And they're able to create a scene by giving these very outlandish uh, speeches that attack in very aggressive ways their opponents uh, late in the hours after Congress has um, um, recessed. There's no one in there, but no one knows that because the camera is focused on them. So there's this manipulation of the of cable coverage that ultimately seems to reward those people who make more of a spectacle. Yeah, we had Julian Zellis, a Princeton historian and sure you're very familiar with his work who has a book on Gingrich and what he calls his band of grifters but it, this isn't just a, a right wing a conservative phenomenon isn't it you can find it on the left as well yeah and that's one of the things that um I find really fascinating about studying this is that Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, they are studying the strategies deployed by the opposition and trying to emulate and surpass those communication strategies that they see as successful. A great example is that um, Bill Clinton, he also, like Gingrich, you know, years before him, when he's on the campaign trail in 1992, he's desperate for any type of media attention that can give his campaign, which is really struggling in June of 1992, a boost. And so he decides to do something unconventional. He doesn't take to the C-SPAN like Gingrich does, although he does go on C-SPAN, but he causes more of a scene uh, in terms of a performance that he delivers on MTV. And so this is something that the incumbent president, H.W. Bush, dismissed why it would be undignified to go on what he called a teeny bopper network. But, Ging er, but um, Clinton understood that there was potential there, that he could go on MTV he could control more of the parameters of the conversation. Um, he could shape not just how people were understanding his campaign, but understanding the news around his campaign. And it gave him a lot of control over the conversation and that narrative. Your previous book to 24-7 Politics was Showbiz Politics. I think you wrote that in 2014. Um, the great book, of course, about the descent of American politics into show business is um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which he wrote in 1984, before really cable news, certainly before social media. How does entertainment fit into this? I mean, you, you mentioned Clinton getting on MTV and being an entertainer, playing his saxophone, uh, Gingrich, whose who's attraction and was as an entertainer was also dis detested i think as an entertainer is there a contrast here i mean I, i'm just um rereading rick perlstein's nixon land rick was on the show talking about reagan land uh, a couple of years ago is, is richard nixon the last vestige of a pre-cable news politician of course you mentioned that uh, one of the first events in the age of cable television is Watergate, Nixon's own demise. 
Yeah, I think, you know, Nixon plays a key role in my research and in both books, actually. And, you know, my first book, I, I, I studied Nixon and his obsession with television and his television image and what he sees as this celebrity persona that helped people like John F. Kennedy defeat him in 1960 and helped Ronald Reagan win the governor's race that he lost in California. So Nixon becomes obsessed with this celebrity persona and he works very diligently to become the celebrity candidate um, in 1968. And very famously, he goes on shows like Laughing as a way to sell his personality very briefly to the broadest audience possible. And I think there's a difference there because he his going on Laughing is his embrace of entertainment. It was his effort to make himself likable. Uh, and he's, again, going on network television to do that. And it's a brief, it's less than 15 seconds, I think, uh, where he very awkwardly says, it to me. The, the what I call the MTV presidency is a little bit different. It still relies on entertainment. It still relies on celebrity, but it's a celebrity that's more shaped by the age of cable, uh, where it's thinking about creating loyalty, um, shake, shaping people's entire understanding of events, not just selling your personality, but building a following, almost a cult following. Um, that is key to the success of entertainment channels and reality television on cable television. And that becomes central to, you know, succeeding in the in entertainment in the age of cable television. But, you know, I, I take your point, but it seems like there's an interesting piece by uh, Rick Lowry and Politico today suggesting that Donald Trump's equivalent is Huey Long, of course, who existed the Louisiana governor way before uh, cable television, even really before broadcast television. Um. Um, you know, even in the pre-cable news age, there was George Wallace, who was the opposite of, of Nixon. There was JFK. There was Bobby Kennedy. Um, could one argue that, that, that some politicians, whatever age they live in, whether it's cable television or broadcast television or radio or the Internet, they just have it. And if they have it, they win. And if they don't, they lose, like Nixon generally. Well, you know, Nixon's a great example because Nixon did not instinctively have it when it came to media. He was incredibly awkward uh, in terms of... Yeah, you know, which explains his loss in 1960. He even used to make fun of himself in mm -hmm. the media for being a loser. It, well, exactly. And he would blame TV, right? It became an easy way to say, it's not me, it's the image. Uh, and as a way to, you know, say that he was he was too serious to be taken uh, to, to sell his message on, t on TV. But what happens in between 1960 and 1968? He studies media. He hires media consultants like Roger Ailes. And if you look at his 1968 campaign, he barely appears in any of his advertisements. They are powerful images and powerful songs and music and montage that really crafts this emotional appeal. And so I think one of the things that changes over the course of the 20th century is that you have the rise of these professional media consultants. The Roger Ailes of the world. Of Roger Ailes, of course, um, who teach candidates like Nixon how to manipulate the media and, and all of these tactics. And that becomes a part of party politics it becomes a part of political what what seems but, but uh, yeah i take your point on ales but guys like ales have always existed they exist today they existed in the in the cable television age and they existed in the broadcast television age
Well, they absolutely existed in the broadcast television age, uh, but they become more central to think of uh, political priorities, uh, more central, they're shaping campaigns. In the early 20th century, you certainly, and even in the 19th century, you certainly had newspaper editors who were very influential in party politics, but the party mattered, patronage mattered, you know, uh, delivering some of these concrete benefits to constituents, that was also seen as really central. A lot of political negotiations happened in back rooms and, um, and there were debates over who candidates would be. That all moves out into the open in the, the 1960s and into the 1970s, making media and television and those people that can help candidates control and sell their image more important in terms of how campaigns are run and the, the priorities and the budgets as well. Speaking of budgets, who are the key uh, entrepreneurs of what you call 24-7 politics? When one thinks of CNN, of course, one thinks of Ted Turner, uh, who himself was a celebrity. And when one thinks, above all else, of, uh, of Fox News, when one thinks of the Murdoch family and Rupert Murdoch in particular. Was Murdoch the guy who got it before anyone else? No, I, I think that Ted Turner is a really significant figure in thinking about entrepreneurs and cable news. And what he does that's so significant when he launches CNN in 1980 is that he says that the news can make money and he embraces the profit potential of the news. To be clear, under the networks, during the, uh, the, 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 the big three networks in the 1960s, the news made money, but they obscured those profits. They tried to hide them because they wanted to, the news to show their commitment to the public good, to show that they were corporate, uh, uh, good corporate citizens um, that then justified, of course, the regulatory status that gave them a monopoly. And so Ted Turner blows this up and says that the news can make money. He teaches uh, people how to advertise, our cable operators, how to advertise the news, um, how to sell political advertisements. And there's this entire effort uh, uh, to show that investing in cable news is a good way to advance the business of television. And it's not necessarily a civic obligation. It's a money-making entity. But they were right. I mean, it was. They, they, they weren't doing it opportunistically. They were doing it to make money. These are media entrepreneurs. And media entrepreneurs, the whole point of being a media entrepreneur is to make money. And, 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 and that's true. But it, what happens then is that this idea of the civic responsibility of news that had become so embedded within broadcasting really starts to fade away. But as you suggest, um, that was part of the, the, the culture of manufacturing consensus where race and gender and sexuality were ignored. So much of that was actually at best, hypocritical. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of contradictions between saying that you're serving the public interest, but only serving a very narrowly defined one uh, during network broadcasting. And so I think what happens is that increasingly the public interest um, in the age of CNN, in the age where cable is expanding, and there is the FCC increasingly rolls back its uh, overview of, of any types of programming, um, pushing networks to make sure that they're following their civic obligations to uphold the public interest. That's all rolled back. And increasingly, 
what becomes first and foremost? The priority becomes the consumer interest, the belief that the consumer interest will also serve the public interest. In fact, that they're one in one in one in, they're, 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 they're the same. And um, and this is a, a this is a shift in terms of uh, rhetoric, uh, but also in terms of policies, because it ushers in deregulation in the 1980s. In America, of course, there's never been a strong government subsidized media equivalent to the BBC or in Canada or in Australia. How does that play out? Does America in the age of cable television, does it sharply diverge from other countries like Canada or Australia or the UK or other European countries with a, a stronger um, nationalized media network? Well, I think one of the key things to think about is that, you know, the uh, really serious discussions about public television emerge in the late 1960s under Lyndon Johnson's administration. And of course, the Public Broadcasting Act was passed in 1967. The implementation of this and a lot of these discussions get... Um, get then shaped by Richard Nixon's election in 1968. And Nixon was against public television. He firmly thought that it would be something, it was part of this liberal establishment that he wanted to tear down. And so what he wanted to do was to usher in something more deregulated, more reliant on the marketplace, because he believed that any government interference or involvement in um, uh, television would result in liberal bias uh, that he was determined to combat. And so I think that th this moment where there's a serious discussion of non-commercial television, what that funding structure may look like, um, it's at the same time that Richard Nixon comes to office and it becomes intertwined with the broader war on television and the media that he engages as president. Well, let's fast forward as we can in the age of uh, cable television to today. The Washington Post ran an interesting piece, the looming existential crisis for cable news. Are we at the end of your age, um, the, uh, the age of 24-7 uh, poli uh, politics, uh, Katie? Um, is, is cable television dying? Well, I, I think that it's changing. Um, and, you know, one of the things I argue in the book is that, yes, there, I think that this is a moment in which business models are reevaluating. Uh, they can no longer rely on carriage fees. And carriage fees were so central to the establishment and the, the profitability of things like Fox News. But as more and more people cut the cord, they're not paying carriage fees. Um, and and so then they they have to rely on the subscriber model. And so I think that yes, cable channels are at an inflection point. They're reevaluating their business models. But I do think that the the values and the business tactics um, that cable networks introduced, this idea of fragmentation, appealing to narrow segments of the audience, getting loyalty, um, really cultivating that loyalty in a way to try to get people not to change the channel, that those things will persist. Um, and this kind of fragmentation and sensationalization of this, what I call in my book, a privatized public sphere, that has persisted on social media. And so I think some of the values that uh, Cable introduced will persist as we kind of move on to, uh, you know, social media and subscription television and, and what this means with more of the world online and not necessarily on cable. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about privatized public, the privatized public sphere, which is, of course, 
the internet. And when you look at something like Fox today, um, of course, there's cable Fox, but Fox is on uh, Twitter, it's on YouTube. So it seems as if the age of social media or the age of the internet, the digital revolution and the age of um, cable news, they're merging. They're hard, they're, they're hard to separate. I think that's right because, you know, networks are now seeing their audiences in all of these different places and they're trying to think about how to how to reach them where they are. And so it's hard to separate streaming from, uh, you know, or uh, streaming from turning on your TV and watching, you know, Fox News. You may be watching it on an app or you may be watching it on, you know, through your cable provider. You may be watching it through your phone. And I think that, you know, um, companies are trying to be everywhere at once. And, and that's, a, that's a challenging business strategy. Which is uh, a lot of people are going to be watching you on, uh, on YouTube and, and on LitHub as well as listening. So it's true across media. Finally, we can't avoid him. He's everywhere. Donald Trump, um, you suggest, uh, or Princeton, who published your book, suggests that uh, your book explains Trump to some extent by playing to narrow audiences. W what, what does your book make of Trump, uh, are you in the uh, are you in the the Rick Larry camp who see Trump as just the re reappearance of something historic in in American politics, the Huey Long or perhaps the George Wallace tradition, or does cable news and and social media do they present Trump uh, as being something profoundly different? Well, I think that you can think of. There is, you know, of course, historical precedents, uh, as you mentioned, George Wallace and Huey Long, but they never became president. And I think the key to why Donald Trump became president is really rooted in our media environment that cable television ushered in because it created certain expectations for performance, certain um, networks like Fox News that he could appear on, but also these values of reality television that he brought to the the campaign trail and to his administration that people experience them before he um, before he even arrived on the political scene and they, they helped groom him and they served his purposes and they helped him connect to audiences as well and to create that loyalty that intense loyalty that has persisted even in the aftermath of him lying about the 2020 election and you know January 6th and all, all of that has come after there's still this loyalty that he's able to command and I think that's very rooted in our media values. Yeah, certainly the, the, the loyalty to Trump is ideological. There is, of course, what we might think of as a, an intellectual loyalty, a, a loyalty to argument and diversity, which the new Keenon sponsor, Liberties Quarterly, represents. Um, I'm thrilled that we are doing a partnership with them. And uh, Katie, uh, all our guests get a, a, a free subscription, an annual subscription. I think you'll find it interesting, and I think they'll find your work interesting. I want to Thank you for 24-7 Politics, and we'll have you back on the show maybe next year to talk about the election, uh, where your kind of media scholarship, I think, will be essential. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to that. Mm -hmm.